If you have your Bibles, I certainly invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It is just the reading of the Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to attach a couple of extra verses to the reading that we've been doing the last couple of months. And so um, this reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, would the words of of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord, you have attached powerful promises to the proclamation of your word. uh, And we rely on them. We cast ourselves on them. That you would use this word for the building up of our faith. That you would use this word um, to to bring us Christ this morning. That he would be exalted. And so, Lord, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are down to our last couple of weeks in this series on this most famous and well-known prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus takes us on this tour, which begins, first of all, with grasping that God is our Father. That is the first thing that we have to grasp in this prayer, that we are his sons and daughters, that it is as if Jesus, our elder brother, puts his arm around us and he invites us into the, the, the same relationship that he shares with, with, with the Father, right? Not pray to my Father, but, but ours. Come join me in this prayer. And then what, what needs to happen is that God's name and his kingdom and his will, those have to be rooted in our hearts as we come before him. And it's from this place of God-centeredness and kingdom orientation that we cry out to God. We cry out to God for daily bread, for everyday provisions that we need to exist in this world. We cry out to him for forgiveness, and we cry out for protection, as we'll see next week. But this morning, we're looking at that cry of forgiveness, that cry that we say, Lord, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, this is a big prayer for us to consider. Kind of feels like the heart of the Christian life to some extent. This is the foundation. This is the A to Z of who we are as God's people. We are those who stand upon and who rely upon and who find our foundation in this message of the forgiveness of our sins. This is the bread and butter of this church, right? Every single week we spend time confessing our sins. This is the unique word. This is the best possible word that we have. That in Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, our sins are forgiven and we have life with God. I mean, we're all about forgiveness, but that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a complicated relationship with forgiveness. I think forgiveness kind of makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. See, forgiveness and grace and those often go together, they, they, they make us feel uncomfortable because they're really not of this world. 
They're not of the earthly soil that we know. It's almost as if a a meteor falls to the earth every time we are confronted with with forgiveness and grace. And we kind of sit there analyzing it and we realize, yeah, this is not of the stuff of this world. And so it's unsettling because it doesn't belong if we're operating according to maybe our nature. I've mentioned before how the news cycle will abruptly come to a halt when we are confronted with radical forgiveness. Um, So often it's coming from Christians, so it's as if our world gets this glimpse of the kingdom of God at at the 5 o'clock news. And so let me give you just a couple examples of this, which is unsettling, it's uncomfortable. You can think of 2015 at the horrific shooting at the Emanuel African Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A young man with racist hatred in his heart, he goes to that church in order to invoke violence against the people, and this African-American congregation invites him in, and he almost changes his mind when he receives that kind of hospitality. But he shoots and he kills nine worshipers. At a news conference days later, a daughter of one of the victims said, I will never be able to hold my mom again, but I forgive you. I have to hand you over to God. In 2018, you had the story of the off-duty Dallas police officer who entered the wrong apartment thinking it was hers, and she shoots and kills 26-year-old Botham John, who's just in his own apartment. And at her sentencing trial, the victim's younger brother takes a stand, and he says, I'll never see my brother again, but I have to forgive you. I love you as a person. And then he makes the most remarkable request. If you remember this, he says, can I hug her? And the judge is like wiping tears away from her eyes as she grants this unusual request. Permit me one more example. Last fall, after a night of drinking and partying, a star-wide receiver for the Las Vegas Raiders drove over 100 miles per hour and just exploded the car of this poor young woman driving home from work from Target. Just horrible. And Derek Carr, the quarterback of the team, who's a pretty outspoken Christian himself, he, he's addressing the victims, he's addressing the heartache of the community, and then at one point in his press conference, he turns to his teammate who's sitting in jail, and he says, you know what, he needs to be loved too. And even if there is no one else to love him, I will do that, because he needs to be shown love, and I can do that. And I think in all of these examples, we're, we're touched on one level by the forgiveness, but we're also thinking, is it that easy? Can you really just forgive that easily? Does he really need to be shown love? I can think of other things that he needs to be shown. And so we have this uncomfortable relationship with forgiveness. We reckon with these stories of forgiveness, not as disinterested observers, but as those who have been wronged, as, as those who have been hurt even as those who have been abused ourselves. And so you can see this prayer is so vital to the Christian life, and yet it's also, if we're being honest, it's terrifying. It's hard. It's heavy. This petition is no light request, and yet just as bread nourishes our bodies, so forgiveness nourishes our souls. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to look at the posture of this prayer I think this is one of the most important elements of praying for forgiveness is is how we approach prayer. That's the posture. Then we're going to see how from this posture we are empowered to live out of this forgiveness in our relationship with those who sin against us. And then what we're going to do is we're going to circle back and double down on the promises that we need in order to be people who forgive. 
And the reason we're going to double down is because what empowers our forgiving is not a threat that God will withdraw his forgiveness if we fail to meet some condition. No, it's the promise that we go back to. It's the promise that we return to time and again as we work out in the messiness of life what it means to forgive those who sin against us. So first of all, what's the posture of prayer? What's the posture of prayer? Well, there are two points I want to make here that highlight, I think, just how profound this very ordinary Christian prayer of confession and repentance is. It's a prayer that is humble, but it's also this prayer of deep confidence. We pray for forgiveness with a posture of humility, but also privilege, also confidence. And so first of all, humility. We come before God dependent and in need of his mercy every single day. We come before God over and over as sinners. Now this should feel pretty familiar in a Presbyterian church. We have a pretty low view of human nature. Uh, we have a high view of human beings, uh, and, and hopefully we, we are having and keeping that high view of human beings made in God's image. But we have a low view of human nature, and we have a low view of human ability. We believe that, that this because that's what the Bible teaches, and then also uh, our experience in this world seems to pretty convincingly back up this low view of human nature and human ability. And here's the thing. You would not be wrong to say that one of the chief proponents of this low view of human nature is Jesus himself. That's remarkable because no one has ever loved human beings more than Jesus. No one's ever had more compassion toward human beings than Jesus. No one has ever affirmed human dignity as much as Jesus, and yet he saw human need with clear eyes. If you're looking for a passage as evidence that we will not escape sin in this life, you really can't do better than the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray. This is a prayer we are to pray for the rest of our lives. And Jesus says, included in that prayer is this need of forgiveness that you will always have. That is part of your everyday praying to God. There is no Christian life that graduates from sin in this life. Think of 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so confession is truth-telling. And we can never tell the truth about others before we tell the truth about ourselves. I love these words from Martin Luther. He wrote, If anyone insists on his own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. He will find he is no better than others and that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. So on the one hand, it's absolutely true that if you've put your faith in Christ, your sins are fully and finally settled. Your sins past, present, and future. And yet in this prayer, we are to return to our Father daily, confessing those sins that we still struggle with. This is our life of following Jesus. This is repentance and faith. Our daily repentance reminds us of our dependence on Christ and his mercy every day. It's grace all the way through. Christian growth isn't gaining spiritual strength apart from Christ. It's realizing more and more the depths of our needs and being met with the even greater mercy and grace that runs so much deeper. And so what does this mean for us? It means that over a lifetime, Jesus can only be more sweeter to us. Far more sweet than we thought when we started. 
that his love is far more powerful and enduring than we ever could have imagined. And I think this is really, really important. His tenderness is more and more experienced in our lives. So we cast ourselves on Jesus. We return day after day to live our lives in the peace with God that we find at the foot of the cross. And so prayer begins in humility, but then there's a second part of this posture. It also has deep confidence. It's a place of privilege. It's just not confidence in ourselves. It's confident that we approach God's throne of grace knowing that he will receive us because of the work of our elder brother, our high priest, Jesus. It's confident that God not only hears our prayers of confession, but we are so confident that because of Christ and for his sake, he forgives us. I love the words about repentance you find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is found in question 87 of what is repentance, and there are a couple things I want to highlight for us, which I really think make this idea come alive, and sometimes the Shorter Catechism doesn't feel like that, but it's here, I promise. The first is, what is repentance? And it's a saving grace. And I love that idea because too often repentance is the whip of a slave driver, isn't it? That's how we think about it. But no, it's a pillow. It's a pillow where we can give up and we can lay our heads down. And we can return to the one in in whom we find mercy. It's a saving grace. Now, what does this grace consist of? Two points. We have to understand a true sense of our sin. That's a big deal. But don't miss this. And an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. It's not just that we go to God with our sin, it's that we go to God knowing that he has mercy toward us. What grace, what a gift we have. That's the confidence of confession. That's the privilege of confession, that in the finished work of the Son, we have confidence, and so we pray to the Father. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in our denomination, he's written a ton of books, he's got a great insight into this passage where even on this petition of forgiveness, we are highlighting God's fatherhood, not that he is a judge, which he is, of course. Because if God is a judge, judges only operate under binary categories. You are either innocent or you are guilty. You are either justified or you are not justified, righteous or not righteous. But that is not the categories of confession. Instead, maybe the better categories between a child and his or her father is that of pleasure and displeasure. And so, for instance, when my children come to me confessing their sins, I do not want them terrified that I will cut the relationship off with them. When they come to me confessing their sins, I do not want them scared that I will abandon them. I may be displeased with them. I may discipline them. But you may even argue and and say, well, that the discipline and the displeasure arises because of my commitment and love for them. But I will not abandon them. They're mine. I'm their father. And I'm a sinful father. How much better is our father in heaven? So this is the life of repentance and faith. Uh, this This is the posture of humility, yet this deep confidence as we approach our father. Secondly, we move on to the power in this, in this prayer. And so what is the power of praying for our debts to be forgiven? Well, the power comes from being forgiven so that we can take the ministry of forgiveness out into this world, into our relationships. And as I mentioned, this is a world that we inhabit where forgiveness and grace are in short supply. 
We live in a time where forgiveness has by and large been either forgotten or trivialized. I think what that means is if the kind of governing ethos of our society that that we easily buy into is you are supposed to do that which makes you feel good, then it makes a lot of sense that you would get rid of complicated relationships. That you would not put yourself in a position where you would need to be forgiving people. You would just leave those relationships and you would cut them off. You would not do the hard work of forgiveness. Or maybe instead of an embodied fleshly community where we are rubbing elbows against people who can rub us the wrong way and we're trying to navigate those circles, we can just create a whole new reality on social media and I can curate an environment that, 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 that makes sense for me, that is pleasing for me, where my own righteousness can shine. The writer David Zoll has such a great line. He says, social media is like the real world just with all the forgiveness vacuumed out. There's no need to forgive. Or maybe it's trivialized. I think we all know this one. This is where, I'm sorry. Let's just move on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We just need to get to the, to the next phase. I don't want to be down with the negative stuff. Let's just move on into the future. But Jesus says, no, forgiveness matters. I think Jesus would say hard relationships matter. We do. We live in a world where we will be sinned against. We will have debtors. If you exist in this world, you will have debtors. And Jesus makes clear that as followers of him, as children of the Father, we are to be forgivers. We'll struggle with this, right? We struggle to forgive. We will be those often who are indifferent to forgiving our debtors. Uh, We will be those who harbor resentment. We will be those who are driving alone in our car and we are talking out loud, rehearsing, telling someone off who has wounded us. We will fantasize about the interpersonal justice that we want seen in the life of that person who has sinned against us. But here's the thing, to be a child of God and to live your life like that, it's, it's like driving on the freeway with the parking brake on. It will grind you down until it breaks. It's walking out of step with the gospel. And so what is one of the main things that we can do to fight that tendency that we all have? It is to return to our Father for his mercy. Returning to God's mercy that we have experienced is the antidote to a merciless heart. You see, embedded in this prayer is this reminder of the empowerment that we have as those who are forgiven to forgive those who have sinned against us. Our forgiveness of others begins, therefore, in response to our being forgiven. You might say forgiveness grounded in the gospel is an act of gratitude, first of all, toward the God who forgives us. Think of Ephesians 4 where Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We are to be the community of the forgiven, which means that all of our relationships are to be marked by forgiveness. Now at this point, I'm hoping what you're thinking is that sounds fine. That sounds good. In fact, that's what I expect the preacher to say, is that we we should be forgiving. But remember where I started this entire message, forgiveness is hard. Some of you have, have been profoundly hurt. Many of us have experienced deep pain at the hands of others. I'm willing to venture that when I start talking about, when I begin to talk about forgiveness, there are some, even in this room, where you start to feel your anxiety increasing. You start to feel your blood pressure ramping up. 
What does it mean to forgive? This makes me nervous. This makes me scared. And so let me speak to you, first of all, especially those whose anxiety is ramping up as we talk about forgiveness. My plea to you is to make sure, before we move on, that you are taking your pain and your hurt and your anxiety and you are bringing it to Jesus. Do not swallow it. Do not suppress it. Cry it out to him. Cry it out to the one who knows exactly what it is to suffer at the hands of wickedness. Cry it out to him. Let me also offer a caveat. Forgiveness does not mean putting yourself in the position of being abused. Healthy boundaries are always established in love, and I would venture to say that to, to facilitate abuse for an abuser is not loving the abuser. It is keeping a cycle of abuse in play, and that, that is not love and that is no way to forgive it certainly doesn't mean forgetting i think the person that says i will forgive but not forget does not know what forgiveness is because forgiveness is not some cheap emotion it is an act of the will forgiveness is to say i will put to death by god's strength thoughts of revenge I will release this idea that I need them to receive their comeuppance. And like that poor daughter in Charleston, she says, I have to give you over to God and I have to get you out of my heart. It means praying for them. It means wanting what is best for them. It means reconciling when possible, which often means that from my heart at the end of the day, yeah, I wish you well. I wish you wellness. And one of my favorite quotes is, resentment is like drinking the poison and hoping the other person dies. And so to forgive is to release. This is about living in the joy of forgiveness. Part of that joy must include the freedom of releasing those that we want to hold on to and that, that can feel good, right? We hold grudges because they feel good, but ultimately it's bondage. And so to return to this prayer, right, going back to our Father, remembering that we have to duck our heads to come into the joy of forgiveness. We are those who have been wonderfully forgiven and then called to be forgiving. All right, so the posture of prayer, humility, confidence. We are empowered as those who have been forgiven. And again, this is the last point. I want to double down on the promises that are in this prayer. We need to do this because it sure sounds like there is a condition attached to the forgiveness that we receive from God. Uh, it's as simple as as we forgive our debtors, right? I included in my reading verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sure sounds like a condition, doesn't it? If you want to be forgiven by God, the ball's in your court. Start forgiving. To the extent that you forgive, so God will forgive you. But I don't think that's right. I think it's more complicated than that. Because instead of a condition, our acts of forgiving provide credibility that we actually believe in God's forgiving of our sins. Broadly speaking, I think to read this as a condition is problematic because our chances of salvation would be nothing if they depended on our own success rate in carrying out God's will. That's why we come back time and again to confess our sins. And so what is Jesus saying? This, 
It would be odd indeed to ask God for forgiveness if you were unwilling to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Maybe odd is too weak. It would be dishonest to go to God asking for forgiveness if you yourself are unwilling to forgive. And, and here's where, where Jesus illustrates this idea in one of the, I think, the most powerful parables. In, in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you recall in this parable, there is a king who is settling his accounts and he brings in a servant who, owned, who owes him 10,000 talents, which is communicating to us an unfathomable amount of money. So the servant comes in, he falls to his knees, he begs before the king, have patience so I can pay you back. Now here's the thing, that servant would have to live three or four lifetimes in order to pay that amount back to the king. And so the king sees this and he grants pardon. He grants mercy. So the servant gets up, he goes out into the community and he sees a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, which you can think that's a reasonable amount that you would lend to your colleague. But here's the thing, that servant does not forgive the debt. And so the king hears of this and he brings that servant back and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant since I had mercy on you? Now there are teeth to what Jesus is saying. This is a hard saying of Jesus, which I think means we need to listen. He who has ears to hear. And here is the hard word. Should you not have mercy since I had mercy on you? And we hear that and we pray, yes, Lord. (laughs) May it be. We even pray, forgive us that debt too. May it be. But forgiving our debtors is not a condition of being forgiven, it's the fallout from being those who have experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of our sins. Our forgiveness of others lends credibility that we have grasped, that we have been forgiven by God. Can you from your heart, knowing the weightiness of your sin and the privilege of being God's son or daughter, can you from your heart ask God to forgive your sins while you withhold forgiveness from others? I don't think so. You can hide behind religion and you can hide behind false spirituality. You can hide behind moralistic law keeping. But can you return to the fountain of mercy and leave dry? If you've been swimming, when you get out of the water, you will drip water and you will leave footprints. It's the same with our communion with God, friends. If you swim in the fountain of God's mercy you will too drip mercy and you will leave footprints. And so in the end, the power to forgive comes from the promise that we live on. Jesus not only teaches us to forgive, Jesus not only shows us how to forgive, he does for us what we are unable to do. And if you struggle to forgive, the only way you will be free enough to forgive is to know that your bitterness and your resentment and your self-righteousness that you struggle with, he went to the cross for those. He went to the cross, and from that cross we hear his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the cry of my incomprehensible debt before God. That is the cry of your debt before God, yet laid squarely on his shoulders, paid in full, not by silver, not by gold, but the precious blood of Jesus. The same elder brother who invites us to pray this prayer with him. 
And so it's here, it's fixing our eyes on the broken heart and the broken body of Jesus where our bitter and hard hearts are softened. It's at the cross where we see and we know that forgiveness is not glib, that it is not some spiritual platitude. It is hard. It is at times heart-wrenching. And it usually feels like dying to yourself. And you and I will never be able to do that if we do not have one hand clinging to the cross. His cross where our sins, our sins are magnificently forgiven. So in closing, in this prayer, forgive us our debts. We return day after day to the fountain of God's mercy. Where we behold his heart for us and where we are empowered to live our lives in the joy of forgiveness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the privilege it is to call you Father. We are so grateful, Lord, and, and my prayer for this room right now is that we would know into the, the deepest parts of our hearts and our minds and our will that you indeed are the fountain of mercy. Lord, who are we that we have received forgiveness, which is eternal life? Who are we that uh, we should receive forgiveness, which is the, the joy of of the life that we were created to live, which is found in no other place. And so from that storehouse of mercy, from that storehouse of joy, Lord, would you by your spirit build us up and equip us to be those who bear this message out into a world that is so, so dry with forgiveness. Holy Spirit, would you take this word and apply it so deeply into our hearts that we would be changed, not just with information deposited into our brains, but that our very desires, our very wills would be shaped by the message of your steadfast love and your forgiving grace. Lord, would you do that? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we turn now to the supper, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right, our duty and privilege to at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty and everlasting God. And therefore, with the company of heaven, we magnify and we lift up your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The major reason we do that little piece of the liturgy, that the Lord be with you, is that the, the fitting response to the word of the gospel is worship. 
the fitting response to the word of the gospel is that we sing the greatness of God. And as we turn to this table, uh, I think it's answering a really crucial question that we may have. And that question is, how do I return to the fountain of mercy? How do I return to, to the storehouse of, of God's goodness? And this is what we mean by saying God gives us these gifts. He gives us these tangible invitations to come to his table and say, begin here, begin now. Realize that as you come to this table, you receive in your hands, you ingest into your body the very promises that God has done this for you. That he has taken your sins upon himself, that your sins are forgiven. The danger of everything we do in, in life, not just the church service, everything we do in life is that we go through the motions. The, the danger is that we, we just kind of walk through life not paying attention, and, and this is the return, right? This is the call that says, no, come to this table realizing that you have come to feast on Christ who is for you. If you struggle to forgive, bring that struggle to God and cast yourselves on his goodness and grace. His goodness and grace, not just heard with your ear, but offered to you visually, offered to you for your hands even here before us. This is the promise that Jesus has given us. This is the victory meal that he has placed in our hands. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the wine and he blessed it and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the feast of Christ's victory for you, for us. Uh, this, this table is, is not the, uh, the table of Christ's Presbyterian Church. We believe that Jesus is the host of this table. If you're not a member of, of Christ Presbyterian Church, you, you are invited to this table. If you belong to, to Jesus, we just ask that you be someone who uh, believes uh, in, in the truths of the gospel, that, that your salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, that you trust in his work and his promises for you, that you have professed that trust before the leaders of, of a church, that you have been baptized into that reality, uh, and, that, and that you are part of, of a community, accountable, walking in fellowship with the body, if that body is not CPC. That's you. you, you are invited to this table. Um, if, if that's not you, if, if this doesn't describe you, we would ask that, that you not come forward. We are so delighted that you are here, but this is a reminder that everything that is offered at this table is the same exact reality that was proclaimed over you, and we want you to have that reality of the forgiveness of sins that's found in Christ. And so there's some prayers in, in the bulletin that you can read through. If you have any, any questions, you can discuss that with myself or any of the, the men standing before you here uh, but if this meal is for you, would you come hungry and expectant to receive from the hand of God? Let me pray one last time to give thanks. Lord, we, we are so grateful for your steadfast love, your, your covenant, committed, promise-keeping love, unbreakable love for us. In that love, Lord, there is life and there is joy and there is forgiveness. And so would this meal be a great celebration? Would this meal be, be something where we say, Lord, uh, I believe, but help my unbelief so that I would be able to grasp hold of your goodness and grace more and more in my life. Lord, would you do that through this meal that you have given to us? We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.